You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. On this episode, I sit down with writer Alicia Akins. The genesis of the conversation was a blog post she wrote called Black Evangelical and Single. It's a good look at what it means to occupy identities that don't always play well together. Enjoy. Welcome to More Than This. I'm excited. This is going to be no other co-hosts on board, so buckle up. Could be a bumpy ride from the hosting perspective. But uh, I've been talking to our guests today for a little bit, and I feel very assured that we're in good hands. So uh, today I have Alicia Akins. Hi, Alicia. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well also. Uh, Alicia is is, uh, on with us today from the Capitol, Washington, D.C. That's correct, right? Correct. Awesome. So... Uh, Alicia and I, uh, I actually met Alicia through her writing, so uh, this is the first time we've gotten to speak. I'm very excited. Um, uh, Had Alicia on, uh, we had a previous guest named Courtney Ellis that recommended Alicia's writing very highly. Um, Alicia, I was wondering by way of introduction if you could tell us a little bit about your blog project you've had going for many years now. Uh, and maybe at the end, there might be a little bit of a book deal that you might want to talk about. So let our guests know uh, what you have going on with if you're writing. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I have spent a good amount of time living overseas, relative probably to most Americans. I lived in Japan when I was little for two years. I lived in China um, for three years after college, and I lived in Southeast Asia uh, for two years after grad school. And Feet Cry Mercy, my blog, uh, was born before I moved to Southeast Asia. Uh, I had a two-year contract with a museum to work there that was about different ethnic groups in the country that it was based. And uh, I was not planning to come home at all during the two years that I was there. So I didn't see my family for two years. Uh, I didn't see my friends, uh, most of them, for two years. And the blog originally was set up to keep in touch with my uh, family and friends who I wasn't getting to see. And so the very early years is just a kind of collection of here's me getting adjusted to life overseas. Um, here are the adventures I'm going on, the places I'm traveling, what work is like, language learning, uh, what's hard, what's good, what I hope to keep from this experience when I go back. Um, the name was actually chosen. So I went to grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle. And when I was living out there, I got really into swing dancing and I would go swing dancing four or five nights a week. And um, I used to say that I wanted to dance until my feet cried mercy. So basically just like dance the whole night till I couldn't stand anymore. Um, but I also realized that that was kind of an interesting word picture for walking in someone else's shoes as well um, and practicing empathy and understanding across cultures. And so that's sort of where the dual meaning of the blog came. But the very early years of it are (laughs) my travels around Asia. Uh, And I wasn't really, I didn't conceive of myself as a writer then. So (laughs) if you read them, there's all sorts of grammatical mistakes and things that I would not let out now if I were writing it. But um, after I moved back to the States, uh, I um, thought about retiring it because life seemed like a different adventure, but um, I continued to write on it. And as different um, current events happened related to race, I would write about that. Um, So there's a period of time where a lot of the posts are about issues related to race and religion. Um, And then uh, about three or four years ago, um, I lost my job. uh, And I was I was working at museum in DC and I lost my job and I was out of work for 15 months and I had a lot of uh, time to think and process and it was a really rich 
personal time of uh, spiritual growth um, and really having to trust the Lord. And uh, so I, that's feet cry mercy is where I sort of wrestled with God and where I um, thought through questions of uh, how stressful um, can I, how much stress can my body be under before I'm not trusting God anymore? Like, is my body telling me that I don't trust God? (laughs) Um, Or is it possible for me to still have like physical symptoms of stress, but still trust God? Or what is, what does it look like for me to um, triumph over my enemies when I was kind of forced out of my position? Does that mean that like, I hope that something bad happens with their exhibit that they have coming up? Or does that mean that I'm able to go to the exhibit and wish them well? Um, So I wrestled with things of like enemy love and contentment and God's provision um, and waiting and um, things like that. And so there's a chapter of the blog that's really dedicated to um, that period of my life, which is sort of where the book came from, which I'll get back to in a minute. But um, and then there was also a time in my life, I'm um, in my, I guess, mid-30s um, and single uh, and have other friends in that position. And there was a time where that was a conversation topic that came up frequently. And I, I wanted, I felt like I was in a good place. I used to say that uh, my oxygen mask was secured. And so I was able to help others. And so there was a, a season where my blog was really devoted to talking about issues of singleness um, so that I could encourage my friends. Um, and so that's sort of like the various stages. There hasn't been a consistent theme throughout the whole thing, but it's touched on each of those based on what was kind of going on in my life at the time. Um, and then the book uh, deal that I recently signed um, is about uh, the theme of feasting throughout scripture. Um, and I was... Um, two things were really impressed upon me. One is that feasting is a universal experience and that it's about more than just eating to be full and that the feeling that you get from being full from a feast and the people that you're with um, and the atmosphere, um, that God uses that imagery in the Bible. And what does that mean for us in terms of how we should experience the good gifts that God gives us? Um, And in particular, how does it show that God, um, that the abundant life that God promises is true and richer maybe than we can conceive of um, with other metaphors? And so sort of the abundance, even in the midst of lack um, during the time that I was unemployed in particular, um, was a theme that really kind of came out to me. But the universality, like I remember being in Laos and I went to a Lao New Year um, dinner and I've never been so full in my life. Like I couldn't even sit up. I had eaten so much food. But like I feel like everybody has a story like that where they've just been full. And I feel like that's kind of what God wants us to feel like in our walk with Him, like full and satiated, um, and like we have enough. Um, and I think a lot of people are missing out on that. So the book that I'm uh, working on right now looks at the different ways that feasts are um, used in the Bible, whether it's to celebrate victory, to mark a special occasion in the life of the um, people of God, or um, wisdom throws a feast in Proverbs. So what does it look like to partake of and pursue feasts uh, or wisdom in such a way? So That, you've got me like captivated. Like I've, you know, <laughs> we don't use the word feast a lot and usually it's just kind of about a lot of food you know somebody mm-hmm. like yeah they just put out you know it's a feast but when you talk about fullness i'm thinking about uh covid and some of the things i'm missing mm-hmm. and like it's we don't live at least i have the privilege of not living in food scarcity and i think a lot of us have pretty stable access to food but i don't feel like i've been full in the way that you're talking about maybe quite a while now i've not done the study that you've done so i can't really comment but just that evocative image and the way you even touched on that is fascinating it sounds to me like um yeah i just it rang true to me that i'm like i haven't had a hardly a meal not just with copious food but also that you walk away just feeling full of life and feeling like you've really 
exhausted your wits and and have something to think about like can really happen when you get together with good friends yeah and and i feel like i've been missing that have you have you felt like you've been able to to feast during this time what what is your equivalent of feast <laughs> yeah so there have been some times that i that i feel like i have been able to feast there was one weekend um where I bought all of the ingredients to make food from places where I'd lived overseas before. And um, I took several hours on a Saturday just to like make rice noodles by hand and and mix all these other things together. Even opening um, a can of sauce from um, like that's a Laos specialty, uh, it really took me back there. And so at that time, one of the chapters I was working on was the Passover um, and about how that meal is supposed to be evocative of a pastime. And so the, the Israelites are able to travel back in their history through food to this incredible experience that they had with their um, deliverer. And um, I really, really felt full that day. It wasn't, a, it wasn't even a lot of special definition of a feast involves multiple people <laughs> um, and special occasion food and things like that. But I sat out on my patio with my plates of food from this place and I felt totally carried away to another time and another place. Um, and it, it was really meaningful. My housemate and I also are really intentional about celebrating things during um, this COVID time. Uh, so we've like had special dinners just as a house. There were three of us, now there's two of us, but this past weekend we had empire night where we, uh, made different recipes from different historical empires, um, and then watched a movie about an empire somewhere in the world. And it was one of the best meals that I've had in a long time. And like just getting to hang out with my roommate and we had like a pretty nice spread and I was like this is like restaurant quality food and I'm not like much of a cook but it was really good and like just the thought that went into it and like the theme and um everything and the anticipation of it I think but yeah COVID it's it's this is definitely a time where people are um thrown off of routine and to feel full is uh much harder work than before. Um, and when all of this started um, in like late winter, early spring, I was working on the chapter about ruin reversed and the, the feasts um, of restoration in the prophetic books. And um, I was going through prophecy about streets being emptied and old people um, disappearing from the land and the voice of the bride and the bridegroom being silenced. And it was like, people are canceling weddings, old people are dying, everybody's at home. And it was this kind of really eerie resonance between like exile and the pre-exilic period and what we were going through. Um, but even thinking about the hope and the feast imagery in the Bible um, after people are brought back together again was a really hopeful image for me to just kind of hang on to. So I, I felt very fortunate to have been for the coalescence of those two things that that was happening at the same time I was working on that chapter. My goodness. Um, well, that's, I can't wait for your book now. So uh, if you could um, just quit your job and uh, you know just go <laughs> ahead and write it, uh, that would be awesome. I'm ex I am really excited. Love to have you back on if you if you like hanging out with us to talk about your book when it comes out. That would be so, sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, I'm seems like um, one of the one of the reasons I reached out to you specifically there was a you had a very poignant title to one of your posts on Feet Cry Mercy, uh, and it uh, the title was I might be beautiful. This is two years ago, and then the subtitle was Black Evangelical and Single. And those three things caught me because I don't hear a lot of those in the same sentence. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I had a, my past life, I was a sociologist of religion. Um, mm. So, and I studied a lot on evangelicalism and it seems like these days, especially in journalistic spaces and political spaces, we hear a lot about white evangelicals, right? They're the, the, the reason if you're if you're decrying you're there to 
Donald Trump's existence that, you know, everybody blames white evangelicals, but like white mm-hmm. and evangelical get tied together a lot. And also I know just from studying sociology that evangelicals as a self-identified group tend to marry on average a little bit sooner than the general population. So if you think of an evangelical in their thirties, you might not be what comes to mind. <laughs> you might not think of Alicia Aikens, right? Correct. And, and the post was a little bit about that and a lot about other things, which are have way more depth than we could probably unpack on one episode. But I thought this is a person I want to talk to you for many reasons. One, I'm snobby and I like, I liked your writing. I thought this is, <laughs> this is a smart person. I want to talk to a smart person because she knows things like post exilic. And I'm like, I don't know what post exilic <laughs> means. So I'm already blown away. But, um, I wanted to to hear a little bit. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your faith upbringing and how it has that you have come to be. Have you always been in the evangelical tradition? Have you recognized yourself as evangelical? Like, how have you gotten to that that label, and how do you sit with it? I'm just really curious about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I grew up, uh, my parents were Christians and, um, or are Christians, and um, I grew up going to a, like a traditional black church where uh, people spoke in tongues and uh, it was very um, energetic during worship. Uh, and uh, it was a Baptist church and um, so I got baptized when I was like five or six because um, I decided to not because my parents were making me. So that's kind of the tradition that I grew up in from all the way from when I started going to church until um, I finished high school. And when I went away to college, I got involved with Campus Crusade, which isn't the blackest organization <laughs> that's, that's um, an out understatement. there. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I started going to a Calvary Chapel church. And um, I really liked it because they went verse by verse through the Bible. And um, my particular pastor happened to have a focus on or had a very big heart for missions, which is how I ended up um, abroad the first time um, after undergrad. Um, But I didn't really think of myself as an evangelical. I don't know if it's that I wasn't familiar with the term or I just was like, I'm a Christian and I go to church and I lead Bible studies and that's like as far as I'm interested in slapping a label on this thing. Um, And then uh, when I was living in China, I was not really anything like my church experience there was very different and I wasn't a part of a denomination or anything like that. We had church at people's houses. Um, When I came back, I went to a non-denominational church in Boston Um, that was multi-ethnic Asian American um, majority and uh, like a sprinkling of white people and then a very small handful of black people attended. Um, And then I moved to Seattle and I went to um, a Korean, I went to Korean American churches almost exclusively. Um, And it was the only uh, black person there. I almost said person of color, but (laughs) we're all people of color. Um, and uh, that was a PCUSA church. And I guess that's when I like n- was conscious of a slide or like a, oh, I think this is like a part of something that has a label to it. Um, but I wasn't, it wasn't like in my blood or anything. I was just like, this is where I go. And uh, I go, I like the people here. The teaching isn't heretical. And so... I'll, this is where I will attend. Um, so I didn't really start identifying as an evangelical until after the last presidential election. <laughs> when the Interesting term time fell to jump into, in. Yeah, I know. When the, I specifically uh, began to identify that way after the term fell out of favor. Um, and I think that it is just um, a little bit who I am that like, I, I found this thing, this, this label that's damaged. And I think that it's gotten a bad rap and, um, I want to see what I can do by living my life in a different way to 
um, correct that and pro provide a, an alternative view so that when people think about evangelicals, not that I'm the model evangelical by any means, but that they might see that there is another option and that they are not all like that. And so I became much more intentional about um, adopting the label for myself after the election. That's, that's so interesting, uh, the timing for one, but evangelicalism obviously is a big tent, you know, so I'm curious um, what, you know, obviously you, you sound like you're a bit contrarian uh, and, you know, like, <laughs> like to take up a lost cause and maybe fight for the underdog. Not that evangelicals have been called underdogs in, in much of society, <laughs> but I'm wondering as someone who has, you have a huge uh, cultural repertoire, right? Like you, and you're also a biblical scholar. So I'm wondering, uh, someone who has a good theological background and a huge cultural background, what does evangelical mean to you as you take it on from sort of a cultural and a theological biblical lens? Yeah. Um, evangelical to me um, is someone who trying to figure out what order I want to say these things. Someone who has a high view of scripture, um, someone who is committed to evangelism, which I think is at the root of the, um, the word evangelicalism. Um, someone who is aligned uh, with a denomination that uh, holds to certain confessions of faith that have been important historically throughout um, the history of the church. Um, and I don't know exactly what in the technical tent beyond that includes, um, but I think that um, people think if you are theologically conservative, you have to also be politically conservative. And that has never been true for me. Um, and I think that it's also been the case that people think if you're theologically conservative, which I'm not using as a stand-in for evangelical, but evangelicals do tend to be more um, theologically conservative, um, that uh, any of your, if you do happen to be um, politically not conservative, that you um, have done so because you have split with um, a uh, commitment to, to scripture. Um, and I don't think that that's true. I think you can be completely, fully, thoroughly, deeply committed to scripture and still be um, politically liberal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so uh, it was living in D so living in DC during the election, the time of the election in particular, um, I had never lived around so many um, like politically conservative people. Like I did grad school in Seattle and there's almost no politically conservative people. By the way, I did too. I did my PhD in <laughs> Seattle about the same time oh. you were there. So I did, oh. I did not know that about us. I went to Seattle Pacific, but anyhow, go on. Okay, cool. Um, and when I lived in Boston, I did not have um, a lot of, I didn't know a lot of uh, politicians uh, politically conservative people. I think I had my first Republican friend when I, after moving to DC, to be honest. And, um, but I had always grown up in the like, or not grown up from college on, I was around people who were conservative in, in crew and in, um, well, I guess maybe just in crew. <laughs> in crew, I was around people who were conservative and I would get like, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian and be a liberal. I would get that all the time. And so part of it was for their, for, for the benefit of the conservatives that I was around, um, wanting to say, here's someone who is theologically well-grounded um, from your perspective, who differs from you politically. Um, now what do you do about that? And who differs from you in a way that she can defend from scripture. Um, and then a part of it was for friends of mine who were not um, politic, who were not religious at all from the other, like grad school friends and random friends from different places, uh, really wanting to 
uh, I think that they conflated Christianity with evangelicalism um, and sort of wanting to uh, sort of redeem Christianity sort of by using the label that they most closely identified with Christians. That is really, man. So, by the way, your definition sociologically, because measuring religion, this is one of the things I used to do is trying to scale measure religiosity in survey mm-hmm. data. Um, you're using a lot of the indicators that are attributed to evangelical when you define it. That is a pretty sociological textbook definition of evangelicalism. <laughs> so well done. Um, you're, you're a uh, researcher's dream because a lot of people say they're evangelical and don't really subscribe to any of those things. So when we see the media talk about evangelicals, they're not necessarily talking about the person you just described, right? Mm, you know, mm-hmm. and the and the Venn diagram of social or uh, you know political conservatism and theological conservatism do tend to overlap. So you you and I like part of this podcast was Kate, my co-host, and I, and Brooke as well. Now my other co-host, sort of wondering how is it that we're still in evangelical churches when a lot of the socio political things are not things we agree with. But I would I would cop to the same things that you said. I have a high view of scripture. Um, you know, I believe a lot of those things well. So really, really interesting. But it also sounds like uh you're drawing yourself into a minority status in, in other ways now. Cause you're you're sort of like, okay, let me be an out group like a lot of people are hating on evangelicals. But let me say I'm an evangelical too. But then even in evangelicalism, so this is all this is all stereotypical now. But understand I sociologists get to be a little bit stereotypical because we talk about broad group differences. Uh not real. But anyhow. Um I'm wondering, uh I think people who at least own the label evangelical tend to skew in the US maybe a little more white. Uh other stereotypes is uh often a lot of evangelical churches um, are more male-dominated, male-centric, not accepting of female leadership. And again, I know that can be actually a lot of black traditions, church traditions. That's not the case. So when you get into wider congregations, it tends to be that they're more, uh, you know, male-dominated in terms of leadership, Um, tend to be more married and uh, marry younger, high value on family raising. This is one of the theories that evangelicals replace themselves at a higher rate because they have, you know, higher birth rates than the rest of the, the population. And as long as you retain some, evangelical numbers will stay steady or rise. And also one of the stereotypes of evangelicalism is that they're a little bit anti-intellectual. So it's a matter of simple faith. Uh, with literal reading of scripture, anybody can sort of understand the plain gospel message. Um, we sort of value, I say we, just in the broad evangelical sense, we we value study of scripture, but we also think that you can sort of take a common sense philosophical approach to it, and God can speak through the plain text to every person, and you can kind of get it. So now let me let me do a little intersectionality scorecard here. I'm not I'm not a big fan of intersectionality theory. So I have you down as as black. Tell me if you disagree with any of these these identities here. Black, female, single, highly educated, evangelical. Now I'm curious <laughs> to hear within the evangelical tent how the rest of those have played for you. So in any order, and I know they don't always stay neatly separated, but what has it been like as a black, female, single, highly educated woman in evangelical spaces over the years? I'm just, I'm just curious to hear the top of mind thoughts from Alicia Aikens on this. So I will say, I do feel, so I'm, I attend a PCA church now. Oh, so you, uh, went, you went to the conservative side of the split. I went to the conservative side, yeah. Um, so, so let me just back up for people on the outside. This is the Presbyterian Church USA versus Presbyterian Church in America. Yes, America. Correct. So PCA is the more conservative part of the split, and PCUSA tends to skew more liberal. That's a gross generalization, but for, for those of you keeping score at home. 
PCA versus <laughs> PCUSA. That's the main difference. Right. So you're PCA um, now. I'm PCA now, which is <laughs> the most con- of the, I think there may be more conservative Presbyterian ones, but of, of the split, I'm in the more conservative one. Um, and I would say that the PCA, PCA churches, or at least the one in DC, um, is pretty intellectual. But I also think you get that in any big city that you're going to skew more intellectual than not. So I have had the benefit or I've had the experience of having a lot of my church experience mediated like in Boston, like everybody there has a PhD, <laughs> you know? So it's like uh, the in, the intellectual part hasn't been um, that much of a, a dissonance with my immediate surroundings. Um, the black um, woman part, I think, has been like notably different. Um, I did come from a tradition growing up where uh, women could be pastors and um, preach in churches and things like that, and um, was uh, very much aligned with an egalitarian sort of view of uh, leadership. I have only in the past maybe two years sort of uh, changed my stance on that, um, <laughs> which I... Uh, I felt like my friends would call me a, like the little pocket of friends I have who are um, theologically conservative, but also uh, politically liberal would be disappointed by my switching to complementarianism. Um, But I think I landed at like, I don't know. And for me, I'm choosing not to, um, I'm choosing to exercise my gifts in a way that I feel no, uh, no injury to my conscience um, and how I'm using them. And I have friends like Courtney, who's a pastor and who's great. And I go to her and I love her woman pastor skills that I've gotten to benefit from. Um, And so I have sort of landed with like, I don't know, but even in the context of my church, um, I am an intern at my church. Um, They had historically had just male pastoral interns and um, I said, hey, I'm interested in doing ministry. And according to our (laughs) foundational documents, um, men have to go through this internship experience so that they are tested and that their gifts are refined under the um, leadership of the church. Um, And if I'm hoping to serve the church in the future, I don't know why I wouldn't need similar training. So I lifted language exactly from our book of church order (laughs) on why men should do internships to support my um, desire to do an internship. And my, the elders at my church were okay with it. So I'm an intern Um, and they have supported my writing. They have really said like, we see that you're gifted and we want to see you use your gifts. That might be a city church thing. I'm not sure, but I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of support from my current congregation but I know like when I think about moving if I ever move away from DC like the churches I could attend would be limited like I'm also a deacon at my church and there are very few PCA churches that allow women to be deacons so so I just want to make sure I heard you correctly you said you have taken more of a complementarian turn and correct and, and okay all right well you left one you left one part of the intersectional identity out and that's the single part and that's why i was curious if you've gone shaded a little more complementarian now what boundaries does that complementarianism complementarianism have uh, as you're thinking about partnering um mm-hmm. has it made any inroads there and changed the way you look at being single or being married in the future or whether because that's, that's often where this comes up, right? Is complementarianism it has to do with uh, romantic relationships and, and marriage. Has it had any inroads there for you as you've, have you, you've undergone that transformation? I think the biggest thing um, in terms of the complementarian split, because I'm not like actively dating, um, <laughs> is the church leadership. Um, 
piece. I have, so when I, when I transitioned, <laughs> if I can borrow that word, <laughs> from one to the other, I interviewed a lot of my friends who were uh, complementarian and asked them, like, in practical terms, how does this affect your marriage? Um, and I asked egalitarian friends, like, what is this like in your marriage in practical terms? How does it affect decision making, child rearing, things like that? I, I asked a lot of people, I listened to sermons on each side, I read articles and things from both sides and um, uh, read feminist literature. I'm, I'm also not a feminist, but um, uh, I, I read and interviewed a lot of people and um, I thought, I don't know that this would make a practical difference in how I couple. Um, because I think like that Ephesians 5 passage about husbands and wives, it's like submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Even like I'm not married and I submit to my housemates out of reverence for Christ. You know, like I am a person who thinks that like submitting to other people is a, is an important practice as a Christian, regardless of what relationship you're in, um, to another person. And uh, regard, you know, marital status, whatever, like that, that represents Christ, uh, well. Um, and so I didn't see that it would make a practical difference, but it does depend on the person. Like some people give complimentary in the bad, <laughs> uh, name <laughs> that it has. Uh, and then some other people who are complimentary do so in a way that is empowering to women and generous. And I think that complementarianism has been rejected by a lot of people because of the people that they see as complementarianism or as complementarians. Um, and again, it sort of goes back to the evangelical term. It does. <laughs> like, I was just going to say. I thinking, think yep. that yep. let's just talk about the fundamental thing that this is and what it was designed to be and what it should be and what it could be and not how it's currently practiced by people and see what can be redeemed from it. So a, re a redemption project. I like it. I think the thing with complementarianism to me is if, if you meet somebody who's really excited about being complementarian, that might be a, a, a sign to run. And, <laughs> and if, uh, I don't disagree. yeah, that's, that's probably it. But, yeah, functionally, as it comes down to it, my brother, I'm, I don't think he would even care to vote egalitarian or complementarian, but he's been married about 20 years. And he just, I remember he was talking to me when I was single and he said, I said, how does conflict work? Like, how do you make decisions? He was just like, well, we make all our decisions together and we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to each of us. And if somebody... God hasn't spoken to the other one. We don't move forward because we just assume that God will speak to both of us. And yeah. I was like, that could kind of fit under both tents for me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, I, that actually makes a lot of sense, but that's a loaded term uh, for some people yeah. when it comes to gender <laughs> dynamics. So um, one of the other things uh, that I'm really curious about uh, in your, if you read through your blog, uh, like you said, you, it was kind of your threshing floor or the ring where you kind of wrestled with God uh, on a lot of things. And one of the things that you document really well is a time where God felt far away or you felt far away from God. I'm not sure how you would, would couch it, but I'm wondering, um, now that I heard your explanation of, of, of owning the evangelical title, uh, maybe this isn't as good of a question, but I'd thought of it beforehand. Um, I'm wondering if there was something in the evangelical tradition that helped sort of bring you back. I'd just love to hear a little bit about that time, if you don't mind sharing and kind of what it was that brought you out of that. I feel like this is just, I, I know you've heard the language of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in my mind, this is me being horribly reductionistic, but when I hear deconstruction, I think of like whiny white people in their 30s, like drinking coffee and talking about how mean their youth pastor was. So mm -hmm. I don't hear mm -hmm. I don't hear a lot of black voices talking about deconstruction. Maybe it's just not language. It's endemic. But I would love to hear 
uh, just a little bit about what that was like for you. You you already hinted at it earlier in the, the podcast, but also kind of how you found yourself in an evangelical tradition coming out of that and coming back into sort of a more robust connection with God. Yeah. Um, so those there were three years after I came back from uh, living in China that um, I call like a dark night of the soul, to borrow that language. Um, I had been doing missions there for two years and then just stayed for a third year on my own because I really liked the country and I wasn't ready to leave. Um, and then uh, I came back, had trouble. I came back in 2008, <laughs> at the end of the year, which um, was not a good time to be re-entering into the U.S. economy. Uh, I had a hard time finding a job. Um, and I also felt like the gifts that God had given me that I had, um, kind of relied on because I had built up a lot of my identity as a person and my giftedness as a Christian, which I don't think is help is healthy. Um, but people do. Um, and I felt like my gifts were gone and I felt like the Lord wasn't hearing or answering my prayers. Um, and I felt very distant from him. Like I had used to spend um, hours in the Bible um, and like, you'd have to work hard to tear me away um, to like, I can't get two sentences into this thing before my eyes are heavy and I don't want to read anymore. Um, and my family was like, we don't even recognize you anymore. Like you used to be a person of such great faith and um <clears throat> I didn't even want my family to talk to me about God anymore. They would be like, well, don't you remember what you said? And I was like, don't remind me about, don't, don't talk to me about that. Um, I remember going to a baptism for someone and um, crying at the baptism and hoping that that person had a better experience than I had as a Christian. I thought I would never do ministry again. God would never use me again. My gifts, I thought my gifts were gone forever. Um, I thought that the joy that I'd had in God's word was gone forever. Um, and I felt just like failure is the only thing that awaits me in my Christian life ahead of this. And I didn't stop showing up. I continued to go to church and cried in the corner and was in a small group and cried every week at that. And I remember one week we had to pray for ourselves rather than praying for our neighbor. And um, all I did was weep. I couldn't even get words out. I was like, and I was totally undone by like how far I had come from this robust faith that had taken me overseas to serve the Lord um, in another country. And um, I went to a concert, <laughs> a Christian concert. Uh, the band, I don't know if they're still around, was called Tim Be Told. And the lead singer had gotten a disease in his vocal cords. And one of the songs was just um, a song about how he was angry at what the Lord had, the, the circumstances the Lord had brought into his life um, and about his struggle to continue to have faith. And that is the only thing I remember from that night, that song and that anger. And um, I felt like somebody else understood <laughs> Uh, what it was like to be angry um, with God and disappointed that he had taken things from us that we had wanted to use for his good um, or that our lives had turned out differently than we had hoped. Um, and it was that and actually going to the gym, <laughs> not the like endorphins thing, but I had been, I had actually made a point to go to the gym regularly that summer and I realized that like there was no specific time that I came back from the gym and saw anything different in my body, but um, I continued to go um, and how much faith that was that like over time, incrementally things were changing, but they weren't things that I was able to observe in one, you know, visit. Um, and I thought how much faith I'd put in that process and how far I had come from the things that I knew that could keep me sort of tethered to God. Um, so I went back and I did things that had felt dry and, um, unproductive for a really long time. 
Um, and I was more open about my anger and frustration and rather than hiding those things, I, I feel like I had tried to like sanitize my experience as a Christian before that, um, where problems weren't really as bad as they were, or I felt better than I really did, or this need to put on airs. Um, but I think being honest and saying like, I'm coming to God and maybe there's incremental change happening in my heart, but I don't see it, um, was really, um, sort of what moved me forward. And then I went directly from that to like coming out of that period of darkness to accepting a job in Southeast Asia that didn't allow me to go to church for two years, almost. So, (laughs) Um, I, it wasn't straight from there into evangelicalism. There was like a two-year kind of continued church hiatus before arriving in D.C. and landing at a PCA church. Wow. My goodness. I, I feel like we could, we could camp there for a long time and just those periods of, of desolation, uh, I think a, a lot of our listeners have probably had those too. Um, there's not a, often a lot of space to talk about those uh, in yeah. religious congregations. They can they can feel maybe threatening uh, or corrosive. Uh, sometimes I've had leaders that have sort of wanted to want you to sort of struggle in silence. Uh, you know, don't don't infect the flock. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, I think I there and there's more writing on that. If you want to hear more of Alicia's story on that, her blog does a, a beautiful job of chronicling that and. I like it because um, you don't just paint like a nice picture at the end of every blog post. Like, but I know that, you know, I'm good, you know, and God is great. And um, you get there. Uh, but I, I think that people will really relate to the, the struggle of that. Um, I, I want to ask you so many more things, but we we're, we're basically at time. But I'm, I'm curious now that you said there was a two-year hiatus, what was it like for you to be able to come back to church and what was your headspace in, in choosing a church again after a hiatus and after having that time? Uh, yeah, th- that's a great question. Um, I have always felt coming back to the American church that it is a church um, that has so much that it doesn't even realize it has. And um Oftentimes, I just stand in worship service and am silent and just taking it all in, that there's so many people that were free, that um, were friends, that it's in a language I understand, that I'm not nervous that someone's going to break up this meeting, um, that there are people with appointed roles who come and make sure that all of this happens on Sunday, and it's not like, you know, that... In, in a sense, it's produced, but like that there's enough bodies and enough expertise um, for that to happen. Um, and I think that's something that you don't take for granted if you've been at a church that meets on a couch in somebody's living room and one person plays the guitar and that person also reads the scripture and also asks the questions. <laughs> um, and so I was excited to get to be back in church. I was nervous um, because my experience leaving the States had been just coming out of that period. And um, I honestly was prepared for no more gifts and no more ministry and just attending a church somewhere. Um, (laughs) The PCA church that I went to was the closest to the couch I was staying on when I was couch (laughs) surfing when I first moved to D.C., And I met people that first week. They invited me to dinner. They invited me to their small group. Uh, That weekend, they had their fall retreat. I went on the fall retreat. And then like a month later, they asked if I would lead a small group. (laughs) So I sort of got plugged in really quickly. And I was like, guys, I'm pretty broken. And I want to be honest about that, that like, this is the experience I've had. And I don't know if you want me to be leading people right now, because I'm going to be leading from a broken place. But they said at the um, small group leaders training that they want people who are leading from a place of brokenness. And that made me feel good about taking that on. Um, But it's kind of just like, 
become this thing that I never imagined, like thinking of writing a book and being a deacon and being in seminary when I never thought that the Lord would listen to my prayers again and that I would have no joy and that I would just attend church on Sundays and cry for the rest of my life is like quite a different (laughs) outcome than I could ever have um, anticipated when I was in that hard time. Man, I just, I think that's so, that's so like the God of scripture that we read about. Um, Just surprising restoration, right? I think uh, my, my friend Austin and I, Used to we used to call it the gospel of the third thing. Uh, we'd say there's the thing that you want to have happen, the thing that you're worried probably will happen, and then the thing mm. God actually does. Mm-hmm. And it's the third thing that usually gets you, and you usually can see God at work in that way. Yeah. And I and I just love your story too. I feel like uh, a lot of people who go through such a dry period for so long and have that desolation, a lot of the ways they come back differ. Uh, but they also, they don't look like your journey, and mine has come back. I even hate the word journey because it gets overused. But um, I had I had a, a time too. It was probably two two and a half years of of similar, mm-hmm. and uh, my faith is not the same. But I'd say it's more quiet, more assured, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just not as worried about the things I used to worry about. And yeah, I've got enough to worry about in this life. It turns out, I'm, <laughs> so I'm glad to set down a few things. So yeah, it's amazing, Alicia. I'm I'm so sorry this this has gone by so quickly. We're out of time, um, which I knew would happen. I told you beforehand um, that we would run short, but I barely got. I didn't even get through my questions. I've I failed as a host, but you've been such an enrapturing guest uh, that uh, thanks. I'm excited. Um, Alicia, where can where can we find some of your writing if we wanna if we wanna go out and read it? Where can we find your writing? Oh, uh, mainly on Feet Cry Mercy, but um, feet, I think it's feetcrymercy.com. Um, I wrote something about waiting for the Gospel Coalition last summer, uh, just waiting in general, not as a single person, um, but what is it like to wait well um, to get to the to get to the other side or to just be in the wait. Um, and then a little bit all over here and there. I've written for United We Pray um, before. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I, I think there's a few people in the world that could probably relate to the theme of waiting right now. We all, There's always someone, but feels like we're all groaning. under the Yes, under the weight and of the weight of the weight. So I have not seen that article. I'm going to go read it today. Um Thank you so much for being here. This was really awesome to be able to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Life's not a